Is the NDP's position in defense of Israel at odds with the membership of the party? What specific moves should Canadian citizens take right now to alter the course of Canada's policy towards Israel? Is a critical component of Israel's war on Gaza the dominance of fake news and disinformation? Was there foreknowledge of the attack by Hamas which led Israel to aggression it had been planning all along? This week on a dynamic episode of the Global Research News Hour, we're turning our attention to the explosion of all peace between Israel and Gaza following the devastating attack by Hamas on Israeli citizens and the show of support from world leaders from the US, Canada, France and elsewhere giving Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu moral support to not only inflict violence on Palestinians but also to wage genocide on the population greater than any level since the creation of the Israeli state in 1948. In our first half hour, Canadian activists Eve Engler and Ken Stone speak up about the role of the Canadian government and about protests in Hamilton affecting the left-wing New Democratic Party. In our second half hour, we hear from journalist Rob Inlakesh about the many unverified and plausibly incorrect stories in Israel and Gaza circulating on mainstream and social media. Finally, Phil Giraldi, a former counterterrorism expert, spelled out how this attack by Gaza, which sparked a brand new war on terrorism, was also a false flag incident. On this week's program, Israel's 9-11, fighting terror through Nakba 2.0. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 20th, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this program was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Oji, Cree, Diné, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. Like the Israel-Palestine situation, great harm resulted from settlers colonizing the land that other people have lived on for generations. We should commit to resolving our own settler-indigenous difficulties before presuming to assist other nations on the world scene. Now it's time for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. The ruthless Israeli assault on the 2.3 million prison inmates of the Gaza concentration camp, along with the sudden expansion of potential theaters of global conflict, are putting the future prospects of all life on earth on the edge of an abyss. There is no precedent for the kind of global catastrophe facing all of humanity right now. At this moment, however, the global ground zero of the catastrophe is Gaza. 
What can we learn by comparing Auschwitz and Gaza? I'll start with a focus on the Auschwitz concentration camp in working my way towards what is going in Gaza. It comes from the article, From Auschwitz to Gaza, The History of Mass Murder and Genocide, by Professor Anthony J. Hall, posted October 18th, originally published on the author's substack, Looking Out at the World from Canada. Sanitary conditions are just appalling, and we have reports in our logistics base, for example, where hundreds of people are just sharing one toilet. Old people, children, pregnant women, people with disabilities are just being deprived of their basic human dignity. And this is a total disgrace. Unless we bring now supplies into Gaza, UNRWA and aid workers will not be able to continue humanitarian operations. The UNRWA operations is the largest United Nations footprint in the Gaza Strip, and we are on the verge of collapse. This is absolutely unprecedented. That comes from the article, UNRWA warns of unprecedented humanitarian catastrophe in Gaza by Philippe Lazzarini, posted October 18th, originally published on Interpress Service. If Israel's army is sent into Gaza, Hamas will keep it there, and Israel risks being overrun by Hezbollah, Syria, and Iraq, and Iran, should they care to participate. Faced with Israel's defeat, Washington would commit its forces with catastrophic consequences. We are experiencing on the part of Israel and the U.S. a total lack of judgment. The risks are being ignored. It is starting to look like the Armageddon that Revelation describes. That comes from the article, Rushing into Catastrophe, Intense War Fever in Washington, America Can Afford Two Wars, by Dr. Paul Craig Roberts, posted October 18th, originally published on the Institute for Political Economy. Israel didn't just cleanse Palestinians in 1948 when it was founded as a Western colonial project and again under cover of a regional war in 1967. It also worked to ethnically cleanse Palestinians every day between those dates and afterwards. The aim was to move them off their historic lands and either expel them beyond Israel's new expanded borders or concentrate them into small ghettos inside those borders as a holding measure until they could be expelled outside the borders. The settler project, as we call it, is a misnomer. It's really Israel's ethnic cleansing program. That comes from the article, What the Media Forgets to Tell You About Israel and Gaza, Israel's Ethnic Cleansing Program, Jonathan Cook, by Jonathan Cook, posted October 18th, originally published on Jonathan Cook Blog. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. To talk about the Canadian connection to the Israel-Gaza war and the historically significant actions taking place in the next few days, 
I'm joined by uh, foreign policy critic Eve Engler and Hamilton Coalition to Stop the Wars, Ken Stone. Well, uh, I'd like to get your your analysis first of all, Eve, on uh, how how the what you see in uh, the, the Trudeau move and and how this is shaping the, the, the next nature of your activism. Eve, could you start off? Yeah. Well, first of all, they rebuff direct requests as Heather McPherson of NDP did in the House of Commons uh, to call for a ceasefire. They they have Trudeau government ministers and Trudeau himself have uh, refused to say that Israel may be violating uh, the the laws of war uh, or in any way uh, criticize what Israel's done. Uh, that's journalists have done that. Friends of mine have done that. I did that to a minister, asked this question to a minister. None no Trudeau government minister will will <clears throat> say that. They, of course, have, have all condemned uh, Hamas. Uh, and but but even worse than that, uh, Melanie Jolie, Canada's foreign minister, on Friday went to Israel to deliver uh, Canadian support uh, as the her counterpart, Israeli uh, foreign minister Cohen, uh, said it was a, it was support for Israel in its in its fight. Um, so Canada has green lit, if you want to call it that way, frame it that way, what Israel is doing. And of course, what Israel is doing is, um, I think it's now up to about uh, 1,300 Palestinian children that have been killed. It's uh, over 45, around 4,500 Palestinians that have been killed. We don't tend to talk about the 1,500 uh, Palestinian fighters that uh, Israel apparently has the bodies of um, that died uh, in the uh, operation that they launched uh, 10 days ago. Uh, so, um, this is of course, and, and this of course is, you know, after, you know, decades and a century arguably of, uh, of Zionist, uh, dispossession of, of Palestinians. And most people in Gaza, of course, are refugees from the ethnic cleansing of 1947, 48. And, um, and Canada has, has basically, uh, endorsed this, uh, you know, every phase, if you want to look at, you know, the. The division led to Hamas taking control of Gaza was was the uh, break up the Palestinian Unity government. The Canadian government was the first country after Israel to cut off aid to the Palestinians with the intent in 2006 to break up um, uh, Palestinian government after Hamas won the legislative elections. Uh, Canada has uh, sent um, uh, has part of a, a counter uh smuggling operation in Gaza to basically support Israel's uh, blockade of Gaza. Uh, the Canadian government votes against UN resolutions, critical of, of what Israel's doing in Gaza. Um, when Palestinians uh, pursue uh, explicitly non-violent methods of resistance to the uh, siege and blockade, like they did with the uh, right of return protests uh, in 2018-2019, the Israelis just, you know, blow off people's legs and kill a couple hundred, including shooting a uh, Canadian doctor, Tarek Labani, uh, that was providing you know medical care for those who were having their knees blown off by uh, Israeli snipers. So uh, the Canadian government is deeply complicit in, in, in this. And uh, fortunately, uh, despite the really um, uh, sort of bloodletting uh, political uh, climate, there have been major demonstrations here in Montreal, the one I went to on a Friday was over 5,000, maybe 10,000 people. There was another one a couple of days before that that was a couple thousand. Um, and, um, and other cities have had big demonstrations. So there is there is resistance. 
sense, but the political or the media climate and the political climate is just completely, uh, deeply, deeply anti-Palestinian. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Ken Stone, if you could jump in here, comment both as a, a as a protester, but also as someone who is sympathetic to uh, to, to, to you know, who are immediately identifies with the, the, the Jewish situation. Well, uh, yes, I am Jewish. Um, and I'm uh, I'm very pleased to see that independent Jewish voices, of which I'm a member as well, uh, has uh, staged a protest yesterday in Ottawa against uh, the CJA conference, Canadian uh, Center for Israel Israel and Jewish Affairs, having a conference with some well-known um, well-known races. And um, for, uh, fortunately, they were able to organize a, a rally outside the event, and uh, we're proud of them for doing that. Um, there have been a lot of uh, Jewish people who've been involved in protests in this area, uh, for example, in Mississauga, uh, Rabbi Mivasar addressed that rally uh, in Toronto. And in Hamilton uh, this past Sunday, we, we had um, IJV, the Hamilton Coalition to Stop the War, uh, the Palestinian Youth Movement, and the Palestinian Arab, the Palestinian Association of Hamilton organized a rally um. and a march that attracted uh, 2,000 participants. Uh, it was an enthusiastic march, and uh, that was in the context of the NDP convention, which was taking place in uh, Hamilton as well. In fact, uh, there was even a protest inside the NDP convention on the second day at about 11 a.m., just as Jagmeet Singh was uh, taking the uh, podium. Mm -hmm. um, about 15 to about 25 uh, participants uh, uh, entered the convention hall and managed to uh, get up to the third level undetected with our banner, which uh, our old banner, which my wife painted, that says "Lift the Siege of Gaza." Well, uh, the banner was confiscated by the security guards, who tackled. They actually tackled uh, some of the demonstrators, including young women, um, and uh, the the demonstrators still managed to have a little rally outside the convention hall. And four delegates came out to join the uh, the picket, and they were afterwards stripped of their delegate status, which one of them was a, was a candidate for a treasurer of the NDP, so she never got to run. Um, I think that was a little bit too much. But in any case, uh, at the same time, Jagmeet was making his speech inside the uh, convention hall. And I witnessed it on uh, video. Uh, the, at the beginning, he says, we are concerned. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing. He says, we are concerned about the plight of the Israeli families who lost people, lost uh, members in the attack by the, uh, Gaza and the uh, people who are injured. And there was polite applause in the audience. And then he said, and we are concerned about uh, the plight of the Palestinians in Gaza and uh, the families of the dead and the injured and the children. Uh, and the entire audience rose up with a standing ovation. So it was very clear to everyone where the sympathies of the rank and file NDP members lay. And uh, it, the, knowing this, the NDP was forced to move when they forced to change its position to become more call for 
um, an end to Israel's attack on Gaza. You may recall when the uh, when the attack, the Hamas attack first started, uh, Jagmeet Singh's initial response was to become partisan and to condemn Hamas and to come down 100% in support of Israel. But in the last week or so, the pressure from the rank and file and from Canadians in general, who have been shown by opinion polls to be well in favor of the Palestinian cause and Palestinian state and Pal uh, end of the occupation, end of the blockade and all of that, I think the NDP has had to move. I think even Trudeau has had to move his position um, and now is talking about uh, making sure that Israel does not launch a, uh, an attack on Gaza that will result in a genocide. Um, so I think things are fluid and they're moving. And I think it's a it's a very good thing that so many people were out on the street uh, over the past 10 days, indicating to the Canadian government that their sympathies lay with the Palestinian people. Eve, I know that... Uh... You're looking at the NDP, for example. I mean, that seems to be like the one place where these uh, people could, um, where, where there were that sympathy for the, uh, the 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 Palestinians. I mean, almost like the, the sympathy for Indigenous people here in Canada. You know, where these people are essentially being colonized. And I, I mean, I remember back in the day. I think Sven Robinson was a very uh, active. Uh, in, on Palestine solidarity, um, are, are we seeing a fundamental change in the NDP that uh, you know the, the the rest of the country is going to have to resort to either finding an, another political party or just through the force of their own uh, people and their bodies in the streets is going to be able to change. Well. I think the NDP's position on Palestine, I, I missed a little bit of that question because you're breaking up a bit, but but I think the NDP's uh, position on Palestine has uh, changed uh, over the years. Uh, you go back, uh, you know, in, in kind of a recent phase, obviously, um, Thomas Mulcair, the former leader, was a, you know, he declared one time, I support Israel in all situations and all circumstances. And um, Jagmeet Singh and Heather McPherson, the foreign affairs critic, are, are less of, of that um, uh, perspective. Uh, in 2021, at the NDP convention, uh, which was online, the membership, uh, after lots of organizing by um, uh, a bunch of activists within the party and, and outside forces as well, uh, passed a resolution calling for an arms embargo on Israel and calling for an end to uh, settlement uh, products being allowed into a uh, uh, boycott of settlement products. Um, so, so that was a big victory and that was a shift. And that was after years and even decades of NDP leadership trying to like suppress debate at conventions. If you go back historically, uh, 60s, 70s, NEP uh, was staunchly pro-Zionist. Um, and I think that much more of the membership was, was pro-Zionist at that time. Now the divide between where the leadership is and the members are, I think, is, 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 uh, is increasingly wide, or certainly was increasingly wide until um, last 
you know, a little bit. I mean, I think the last 10 days have, have changed things because the statements that were put out in, in, initially after Hamas's um, uh, uh, operation, um, they were, they were um, you know, I think way too um, kind of aligned with the Israeli perspective. And they're clearly backing away from that to a certain extent under a whole lot of pressure. Um, uh, Jagmeet Singh uh, today is scheduled to speak at the uh, anti-Semitism conference that uh, Ken mentioned. And this they call it anti-Semitism, uh, face it, fight it. Uh, it's nothing more than a pro-Israel um, uh, event. And uh, and so there's been a campaign um, by uh, Just Peace Advocates, Canadian Foreign Policy Institute, uh, uh, Palestinian Israel Funi, uh, and other groups to call on Singh to not participate. He should never have uh, agreed to participate in this conference. And um, in recent, what's happened in recent days, even more of a reason not to. And also, one of the speakers um, was is. Uh, tweeting out these images of uh, the IDF uh, crushing cockroaches, which are Palestinians. And and when challenged on it, said that they're vermin. So you, like this is somebody who's supposed to be fighting hate. Um, so so this is the type of a conference that Singh is still willing to participate in. He, in response to uh, letter writing, we didn't know this was going to be an Israel lobby event. Uh, we just thought it was more fighting anti-Semitism, uh, this kind of really wishy-washy statement, but, he, but clearly feeling a lot of heat on the matter. And in the House of Commons just uh, today, uh, Singh was uh, making kind of more uh, critical comments of what Israel is uh, doing. So there is this sort of, you know, with all the campaigning, all the heat from pro-Palestinian forces, um, the NDP is kind of, you know, waffling all over. But there's no, what 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 is unequivocal is that Jagmeet Singh, Heather McPherson, even if they've moved in better position, they are not willing to be um, bold in what, in their, they're not willing to sort of say, hey, we know that no matter if we stand up for Palestinian rights, we're going to be attacked as uh, anti-Semitic, anti-Jewish, whatever. We know that's going to happen, and we're willing to, you know, uh, accept that uh, um, and you know plow forward with doing what's right. They're not willing to do that. They get they get whipped either different directions. So one day Singh will make a statement that upholds Palestinian rights. The next day he'll participate in the sieges Israel. Uh, um, wine and cheese on the House of Commons. Um, so so uh, that's the reality. Now, I don't think it represents the opinion of NDP members who, who polling does show very clearly uh, that are overwhelmingly believe Israel's uh, an apartheid state and, and you know, believe that there should be uh, sanctions on Israel and the like. Um, but but there there is also a broader political reality that the NDP is, is, is operating within. And um, as a you know, across the board, not just on this question, across the board. Uh, certainly their foreign policy is aligned with with um, Western imperialism. And I would say even going broader than that, even their domestic policy, uh, they're not doing very much to uh, uh, challenge the status quo. And on foreign policy, oftentimes they're, they're you know, even um, egging on the, uh, the sort of imperial uh, uh, order. What direction should we be taking right now right now to to somehow deter our foreign policy in some way uh, away from its current situation you, you can go quickly first if you want and then and then to ken stone you mean specifically around palestine or just in general can you foreign policy in general oh uh, just pal yeah palestine and, uh, and yeah, palestine. i mean I, I i think that i think that 
every single place that a, uh, a minister of the government uh, or quite frankly, an official of, of MP, mayor, premier across the country, um, when they're speaking, if they've put out a statement saying that they condemn what Hamas has done, they should be asked, do they condemn the clear crimes against humanity that Israel is committing? A lot of people argue, and I think probably correctly, that they're genocidal policies that Israel is pursuing in, uh, in Gaza. Um, they should be asked that at minimum. Ask, well, if you, you're willing to condemn one side, why can't why won't you condemn the other side? And we found that so far with some ministers of NAS, they won't condemn. They won't even criticize. Um, so, so I think that that's a, a you know simple thing that you know any uh, whenever you hear about a politician in your local community that's made a statement on the matter, ask the question. Now, more broadly, uh, I think that the demonstrations that have been taking place are absolutely essential. Uh, people should you know uh, think about. Uh, occupying the offices of, of, of MPs or ministers, people should, people should clearly, put, you know, demanding that they make a statement, calling for a ceasefire or something like that. Uh, uh, there, there should be, uh, you know, like the protests that happened at the NDP convention is exactly the type of thing that we need to be doing more of, uh, wherever there's an opportunity, you know, if there's any sort of, you know, media glare media focus to to you know show up there and 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 bring uh, you know no to the no to the genocide in Gaza kind of uh, uh, perspective. There's there's actions that independent Jewish voices, CJPME, Just Peace Advocates, and others. You know, email actions. People should be obviously uh, engaging in those. Um, but you know, it's it's to just raise your voice to the extent possible. Uh, it's our we know it's already trickling within the political uh, establishment. Obviously, you know, we, we need a whole lot more from the standpoint of the NDP. To me, an absolute minimum position is the NDP should be reiterating its official policy, which is an arms embargo on, on Israel. That a minimum, they should be saying that, and every time they, they raise this question, they should be saying, uh, you know, two years ago at the convention, our, you know, over 80% of NDP members said we on an arms embargo in Israel, um, and in light of the you know destruction, the more than three thousand killed in Gaza, this is an exact time they should be raising a, a, an arms embargo. So, so um, activists can I think there's lots of different ways of even accepting kind of the parameters of the anti-Palestinian political discourse. And we, we shouldn't, you know, when we're speaking among ourselves, but even within the sort of official politics, there's all kinds of ways of intervening to say, hey, you condemn Hamas, but why won't you condemn uh, Israel's violation of international law? Oh, you, you, you know, you, from the NDP, you, you've, you've previously called for an arms embargo. Why can't you reiterate that now while there's thousands being killed? Um, so there's all kinds of, I think, very, um, obvious and simple uh, forms of intervention that people can, uh, can people can take. All those things that people can do, which were just suggested by Eve, are fine things. People should get together with their friends and neighbors and working on trade unions and their schools uh, on social media to do all the things that uh, that uh, Eve was saying. But I don't think his demand about just the weapons that are shipped to Israel is ambitious enough. The uh, I think what we have to say is that the Canadian government has uh, failed in its duty to uh, to live up to the uh, its own official position, which is that there should be a just, lasting, and comprehensive peace agreement in 
Israel-Palestine to re resolve all the issues which have been uh, in play for the last 75 years. And I would say to the NDP that you as a party have failed in your uh, duty to hold the government to account, especially as you're in alliance with the government. Why have you just woken up when this issue, when, God, when uh, Hamas broke out of Gaza? Where have you been previously? You're supposed to hold the Canadian government to its position uh, as a UN member and as to its stated position for this just, comprehensive, and lasting compre uh, settlement, which includes the formation of a Palestinian state with its capital in Jerusalem, with the return of the Palestinian people, uh, and uh, a, 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 a fully a, a state uh, equal to uh, the state of Israel with and a UN member. These are the things that Russia and China and Saudi Arabia, Egypt, a whole whack of countries in the world are pushing right now. There's a huge press on right now at the UN and in all the diplomatic channels to bring about now the settlement that's been waiting in the wings for decades. And that would include uh, a state for the Palestinian people. We just spoke with prominent Canadian anti-war activists Eve Angler and Ken Stone on Canada's response to the Israel attacks on Gaza. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Robert Inlakesh is a political analyst, journalist, and documentary filmmaker currently based in London, uh, UK. He has reported from and lived in the Palestinian territories and currently works with Kuds News. He's director of Steel of the Century, Trump's Palestine-Israel catastrophe. He joins us now to talk about the accuracy or lack thereof surrounding what is becoming available on social media and mainstream media regarding the current Israel-Hamas conflict. Thank you so much for joining us, Robert. Thanks for having me. In the lead up to the Persian Gulf War three decades ago, the U.S. got outraged by the stories of Iraqis supposedly taking babies out of incubators and throwing them on the floor. Total fiction. Today, we hear stories of Hamas beheading babies like ISIS. What have you been able to confirm about the authenticity of those stories? Well, so far, we have to take a lot of what the Israelis are saying with a pinch of salt. And we can do this based upon what Israel has historically said um, when it comes to their own atrocities. Uh, this has been the case uh, in Lebanon, in Gaza, uh, and elsewhere, by the way, as well. Um, for those who remember uh, that far back, when Israel committed its second uh, massacre in Pana in Lebanon against a UN facility where people were sheltering, it claimed that Hezbollah had dug up the bodies of children from a nearby graveyard and put their bodies on display in order to make Israel look bad, which of course uh, was a lie and they later retracted. And just from last year, uh, there was the murder of Shirin Abu Akleh. Um, the veteran Al Jazeera journalist, an American citizen, actually. Um, and when she was killed, uh, the Israelis uh, on their official government uh, pages released what they called evidence 
of Shirin Abu Akleh being killed by Palestinian gunmen, which they knew was incorrect and couldn't have been uh, footage proving that, which was quickly debunked, actually, um, last year by B'Tselem, Israel's top human rights organization. And then when Israel bombarded the Gaza Strip and attacked Gaza in August of last year, also, we saw that they lied about Palestinian misfired rockets, the very same thing that they're claiming happened with the bombing of a hospital uh, recently. And uh, they said that the majority of children killed in that attack last year on, in Gaza uh, were killed as the result of misfired rockets. In one case, a, a graveyard was bombarded in which five children were killed. Now, the evidence was so overwhelming after the war uh, of this graveyard bombing. I, in fact, was in the middle of an investigative piece looking into it. I had interviewed the families of the children, and I was informed that we had the missile um, with Hebrew in, uh, writing on it um, and that it had come from a drone. But just before I was able to publish this, uh, the Israeli military and un uh, unnamed official admitted to Israel's uh, most trusted newspaper, not the most read, but the most trusted Haaretz, that they in fact did bomb that site and, and kill those children after, of course, denying it. When it comes to what happened in October 7, what we have to understand is that we don't have anything independently verified really from there at the moment. We have videos um, and there is some indication that civilians, uh, people who were unarmed, were shot. However, one thing that I would caveat that with so far, and this is why it's so important to have independent investigations on the ground in human rights reports, is that there are many cases where we don't know who shot these people. Was it Hamas members from its armed wing, the Al-Ghassan Brigades? Uh, was it another one of the Palestinian armed groups? We also have evidence that Palestinians that weren't from any armed group crossed over. And we know that do, people do have uh, access to weapons as well who are not part of any armed groups. Uh, and then on top of that as well, we have uh, copious amounts of video evidence documenting and also Israeli hostages who were released later who were saying that uh, perhaps there were shootouts and Israeli soldiers killed Israeli civilians in various circumstances. Now, I don't purport to know which cases are true, how many people were killed by uh, Israeli gunfire, what uh, alleged atrocities were committed. I, I simply cannot know. But we know that, for instance, with the claims of rape, which came out, these claims of rape were being made prior to Israeli soldiers actually taking back any areas. And in many of those initial cases of rape, which they point to, to as examples, uh, at least uh, on social media, uh, were debunked. Um, so then we have the, the cases of uh, the 40 so-called beheaded babies. I think they've dropped the claim of beheadings uh, at but this was repeated by the U.S. president as well as the Israeli prime minister. Um, and so there's a serious campaign of disinformation. And I believe this seeks to try and justify uh, the barbarism that we're seeing going on by the Israeli military in the Gaza Strip to say that what happened on October 7 was so bad, so horrible that now Israel must carry on in a barbaric way in the Gaza Strip um, in retaliation. Uh, 
this, of course, ignores all the context prior to October 7th and what was being done to the people of Gaza. So when you said earlier that uh, they, there were the messaging about uh, women being raped, for example, that it came out before uh, the 7th. I mean, what were you saying? Like it was on Twitter or, or on X or or how was it coming out exactly? I'll be uh, I have to be completely clear about uh, maybe perhaps I just mis misspoke. So when the initial uh, information came out about uh, the Al-Qassam mission, which, by the way, not it didn't just target um, Israeli uh, settlers uh, and unarmed people like they're making out around 400 armed Israeli soldiers, uh, members of the Israeli security forces uh, and police officers were also killed. Um, so this was also an attack on Israeli armed positions. And it's not to say that they didn't attack unarmed people. Um, clearly, unarmed people were killed. Um, but what I'm saying is that the Israeli military had actually lost ground and that the Palestinian fighters entered areas um, where they had taken hostages and had shot people. The Israeli military, prior to it actually taking back that territory, which is the only way that they possibly could have known for sure that women were raped, for instance, is that they must have gone in there and investigated and seen something in order to make such an allegation. Um, that didn't happen until actually days later, it took them to control every, put everything into control um, and definitely not on the 7th, yet on the 7th, uh, 7th itself is when the rape allegations came. So where did these rape allegations come from? Did they come from women? Did they come from someone who saw something or people who made up the claims and then afterwards provided no evidence for these uh, claims? Now, if Israeli women were raped, this is a horrible crime and this should be condemned, of course. But where do these claims come from? Who are making them? Where is the proof of it? There are there is no proof. And the proof uh, the, and the allegations came out at a time where I believe there is there was no way of the Israelis actually knowing whether this could have happened or not. Hmm. Okay, well, the Israeli army still refuses to let international journalists or independent uh, bodies uh, like the ICC into Gaza. And, and there are reams of information on social media that continues to put out uh, a lot of these um, you know, false or, or dodgy facts that's not verified. Now, why is Western media, in many cases, it's their instinctive response to, to parrot the media without digging into what may be what may be disinformation. I mean, we hear so much about how Russia engages in disinformation, and yet it seems like it's a different standard with, with Israel. So I, I am just wondering, how, why is mainstream media dropping the ball so often when they would be intensely skeptical of, of you know, Russia or China or, or some other outlet? Because Western media, they work as propagandists for Western governments and their allies. And, and that's very clear at this point. Um, we've seen what they've done when it comes to Russia. I'll just give you um, an indication of the difference between Russia, um, its attack on Ukraine and uh, children killed. And this is as of uh, the official numbers, which will ring true with most human rights organizations in the West, of how many children in Ukraine have been killed uh, since the beginning of the Russian attack. That number is roughly put at around 550 in years of war. 
Now, Israel, in its first 11 days of attacking the Gaza Strip, killed over a thousand children. That's almost double the amount of children killed by the Israelis in a matter of days, just over a week, than the Russians are reported to have killed in almost two years. Israel dropped just as many munitions, if not more munitions, munitions actually, on the Gaza Strip in a week as the U.S., dropped on Afghanistan in the first war of a uh, year of war, roughly, according to reports. The missions that were have been carried out over the past years against ISIS or Daesh in Iraq and Syria by the U.S. military and the coalition, uh, the uh, U.S. coalition, Israel carried out in the first seven days of its attack, it dropped more almost double the amount of munitions that the average month are dropped on ISIS by the US-led coalition in a month. Th these are the numbers that we're looking at. Now, Israel takes, uh, sorry, the Western media takes basically everything that Israel says as, uh, as proven, uh, verified information. And we have to ask ourselves, after its track record of lying about every single atrocity it has basically ever committed and blaming it on the victim almost every single time, why should we trust them? It makes no sense, especially without evidence. But on the Palestinian side, you'll see the uh, Western uh, corporate media will question what's happened on the Palestinian side and why the civilians were killed, despite copious amounts of evidence of civilians being killed with no military targets being there and there being human rights organizations um, and independent journalists indicating that. So Israel is apparently right when the situation is not very clear about what happened and they can make any allegations about beheaded babies and uh, rape and all sorts of different things. And we just have to take them at their word and they never have to present any evidence. But when civilians are killed on a mass scale in Gaza and we have copious amounts of video evidence from multiple angles, that is not somehow proof. And we have to wait for the human rights reports. In my opinion, we don't have to wait for the human rights reports. Do you know why we don't have to wait for the human rights reports? Because it's pretty obvious that killing over a thousand children and that when you kill around 4,000 people and uh, more than 50% of them are women and children, and when you have a track record of every few years attacking Gaza and in every single one of the human rights reports, whether it be from Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International or the United Nations or B'Tselem uh, are indicating that you have attacked not only uh, uh, civilian targets and, and committed potential war crimes, but also that you've attacked hospitals and schools and mosques time and time and time again. Even in 2018, when there was no Israeli killed and there were nonviolent demonstrations, which, by the way, were endorsed by Hamas, they tried to adopt this nonviolent strategy, which is held by the Palestinian Authority in the West Bank um, in 2018 for a brief period. And um, Israel killed hundreds of unarmed Palestinians. No Israeli was killed during that time. And the UN released a report, which I went through uh, very carefully um, and wrote a piece on it at the time, breaking down 
uh, and looking at their examples. And they concluded that Israel had targeted women, children, the elderly, uh, journalists, medical workers, and people with disabilities at that time. Uh, so we have a track, we have Israel's track record. Um, and we have the fact that in past cases over the years, uh, historically, they've always lied about what is being done. But on the Palestinian side, we have a copious amount of evidence of war crimes being committed against them. It's a double standard. Palestinian lives aren't as important to Western media. Palestinians uh, and, and what they witness and what they go through is not deemed as trustworthy uh, to Western uh, media. Um, and that double standard, I believe, is rooted in the racist rhetoric, which is being pushed against Palestinians. And also by framing this as a Hamas-Israel uh, war, Hamas is one of over a dozen armed groups participating in this uh, in this armed conflict from Gaza at the moment. It's the most powerful, and of course it is the government force in Gaza. Um, but it's not just Hamas. There are groups like the PFLP and DFLP who uh, share a Marxist ideology. And there's groups like uh, the uh, the Martyrs Brigades, which is attached to the nationalist uh, Fatah group. Uh, so this is not a simple... Um, uh, black and white conflict between uh, what they would call uh, Islamic terrorists and and Israel. Uh, no, in fact, this is all of the Palestinian political factions um, in Gaza with their armed groups in conflict with Israel. And these are political fa uh, factions which are from across the the political spectrum. Robert, I um, really appreciate your having you on. And I should also mention that you have relatives uh, uh, living in Gaza that, that have already been killed. So I, I do feel for you and what you've had to endure, along with all the other listeners who are in a similar situation. Um, but but thanks for uh, relaying your the details to us. And uh, we look forward to you. Maybe we'll have you on back next week to, to, to break down things a little bit better. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Robert Ilakesh is a political analyst, journalist, and documentary filmmaker. He joined us from Calgary. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said his country was at war and that, quote, the war that was forced on the state of Israel in a murderous terrorist assault from the Gaza Strip began at six o'clock yesterday, unquote. President Joe Biden, speaking in Tel Aviv this week, said this attack was the equivalent of 15 9-11s. However, the attack bore a resemblance to 9-11 in more than just the atrocities and bloodshed. It appears like 9-11 to have been the consequence of foreknowledge on the part of the Israeli government in order to finally eradicate the Palestinian population from the Gaza Strip with the sympathy of world leaders, or so argues Philip Giraldi. He was formerly a counterterrorism specialist and military intelligence officer of the CIA and a founding member of the Veterans Intelligence Professionals for Sanity, a group of former intelligence officers who criticize government policies. He wrote an article uh, recently talking about the attack as a modern false flag. He comes onto the show now to explain this position. Mr. Giraldi, the thought that this was an intelligence failure is a possibility. 
for, for their for all the their attempts to spy on the people of Gaza, is there not the possibility that maybe Hamas is more skilled than the Israeli army uh, gives them credit for, uh, possibly passing on information even more delicately than any listening device or, or monitor could pick up? I mean, and even powerful entities like the Israeli intelligence can slip up from time to time. They aren't perfect. Based on your own uh, on-the-ground work in intelligence, what aspects of this case, in your view, just doesn't pass the sniff test? Well, there are a number of things that don't pass the, the sniff test here. You're quite right in, in, in stating that uh, there are intelligence failures. I certainly witnessed enough of them when I was working for the uh, U.S. government. Uh, this is always a possibility. People make mistakes, they misinterpret. But this, in this case, we have a, uh, a whole um, series of separate uh, confirmations that the intelligence or the information that Hamas was planning something uh, at or around the date when we're speaking of uh, is basically too strong to say that this was a failure. The, the Egyptians, for example, who uh, control the southern border uh, of uh, Gaza, gave uh, intelligence to the Israeli government saying that something was about to occur. And this was days before uh, the attack actually took place. Um, this, the United States government, more recently, after the attack, uh, a congressman who was head of the House Intelligence Committee confirmed that U.S. intelligence had information suggesting that something was about to occur. And this was also passed on to uh, Israeli intelligence at the highest levels. So that was confirmed. And the third thing I would point out is that the uh, uh, Israelis, of course, have all of Gaza or two, two or three sides of Gaza completely surrounded and enclosed by electronic uh, fences and listening and photographic devices and and also have the airspace over it controlled by photographic and reconnaissance drones and uh in addition to that the israelis had uh, uh informants of their own inside gaza and we have also subsequently learned that uh the uh, hamas people were actually out in the open training to to do this exercise to uh uh, go into uh, the Israeli territory. Um, so this was quite visible, quite known to a lot of people. So that means to me that the Israeli government, for reasons of its own, decided it wanted this to go forward. And uh, they were probably quite surprised by how effective it was. But they wanted it to go forward for various political reasons. Mm -hmm. Well, you just mentioned an, an, a U.S. intelligence uh, informant. I know that Israeli and U.S. intelligence tend to work together to a great extent, and the reaction would have involved a U.S. and, and possibly other members of NATO to respond in support. Assuming this was a, uh, a you know something that was already known, a, a false flag, if you will, would the U.S. likely have been on board? Well, that's, of course, a very good question. Uh, I would suspect this is a case where Israel would be hiding cards, would be very careful about telling the U.S. too much. And uh, I, I suspect that they 
uh, Israelis wanted this to kind of remain a false flag. So nobody would be accusing them of killing their own citizens, which is what occurred in this case. Uh, so they they probably wanted to be careful about who was an insider on knowing this information. I would think that uh, uh, they did not share this kind of information with anyone. And uh, they were hoping that this would spark a, um, a willingness on the part of the NATO and the United States to support a massive Israeli counterattack on Gaza, which could effectively destroy the entire Gaza Strip. Does the Israeli government offer any kind of an answer to why Mossad, uh, plus a tip from the, the Egyptians and from the Americans, why this would, uh, how this would elicit a drop, a drop in, in the security concerns? Yeah, no, they've been, uh, that's the one subject they're not talking about. They're accepting that their, uh, uh, their security people, meaning their intelligence and their military, uh, dropped the ball on this because that's part of the story they want to promote. But at the same time, they're, they're not saying, well, wh why were you asleep when this information was coming in from Egypt, from the United States, our closest ally? and uh, also from visual and physical observation of what was going on inside Gaza and around it, uh, and you didn't uh, respond to it. Hmm. Okay, the enemy in 9-11 was Al-Qaeda, okay? Uh, in this case, in the case of this uh, recent attack on Israel, it's Hamas. But a number of people have stated that Hamas is financially supported by Israel, just like Al-Qaeda and, and Osama bin Laden were supported by the U.S. as you know the, the website and uh, you know other uh, people have been putting forward, uh, like Michelle Chosodovsky. Um, not not that people in these groups are necessarily aware of that support. Um, could you run down for us like how Hamas's existence, with their intense hatred and military military means, can actually play into Israel's hands? Yeah, well, you have to go back to uh, about 2006 when there were elections in what we would refer to at that time as the as Palestine, the Palestinian territories, which consisted then of Gaza and um, the West Bank. Um, there was a fiercely contested election uh, pitting uh, Hamas uh, against Arafat's group, uh, Fatah. And uh, this was uh, seen as an opportunity by Israel and to a certain extent the United States to split the Palestine political movement. In other words, kind of cut them politically and, and physically in half. So Israel basically created or was involved in the creation of Hamas and indeed did fund it in the beginning and for quite some time thereafter to keep it as a force to oppose Fatah and keep the Palestinians from becoming unified, which the, the Israelis saw as a bigger threat than having them divided in two, even if the one half Hamas is technically or was technically and is technically hostile, very hostile to, uh, to the Israeli state. Mm. So 
Well, since we have the analogy to with 9-11, or maybe it's more like Pearl Harbor in the sense that it's uh, it was foreknowledge, um, do you see this strategy working the same way that, that, uh, that the Pearl Harbor attack did or the September 11th attack did, basically giving Israel clearance to wage a, a genocidal attack against the uh, the Palestinians in Gaza since it seemed to be work it seemed to work on world leaders so far or or will it be derailed at some point what do you think well uh, that depends on how it plays out but i think your analogy is correct i mean what happened at pearl harbor well there was an attack against a, a united states military installation uh, which the us government knew about in advance but uh, Franklin D. Roosevelt allowed it to happen because he wanted to the United States to get involved in the Second World War for various reasons. And uh, the same thing with 9-11. Uh, the Israelis clearly, clearly knew about what that something was going to happen uh, that we call 9-11. Now, whether it was involving airplanes or explosives or, you know, people still argue about that. But the fact is that uh, they knew about it in advance. Uh, they were set up and celebrating in advance, knew that this was going to take place. So they also got a benefit out of it in the same way. The United States suddenly uh, turned from being somewhat neutral on, on uh, Middle Eastern politics in a lot of ways and uh, became firmly a, an opponent. The war on terror, the war on terror was, terror was a a war on uh, a number of Middle Eastern states and Central Asian states, all of which were Muslim. So this was pleasing to the Israelis. So this, very, there, there are very strong similarities. This would have been a similar situation bringing um, the, the support of the Europeans and the United States and into um, Israel for going into Gaza and cleaning it out. Uh, was probably the objective of, of doing what they did. Hmm. Philip Giraldi, I do appreciate your time. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. All right, well, thank you for having me. We've been speaking to Philip Giraldi, the former counterterrorism specialist and military analyst for the CIA, also a founding member of the Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. He joined us from just outside Washington. We'll have more on this issue next week. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us.